Blog Talk Radio. September 6, 2013 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. That's the philosophy behind the uniquely American sense of life, the sense of life of those who believe we have a life to, excuse me, we have a right to life, liberty, and most importantly, the pursuit of your own individual happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and joining me today for the first hour is Jerome Brook. He's the president and executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute. He's a former first sergeant in Israeli military intelligence and has written on foreign policy, although most recently he's focused his attention on the moral defense of capitalism. He is the co-author, along with Don Watkins, of Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government, and most importantly, of course, in an accomplishment that is outweighed, excuse me, that outweighs any of the other things that I've talked about, he is an honorary president of Don't Let It Go Unheard. So we've missed you, your own. We haven't had you here for a long time. Welcome back. That's right. It's good to be back. Thank you. Um, so just briefly, your own, what have you been up to in all this time that you've been away from us? <laughs> just briefly. Uh, you know, basically traveling the world, uh, tra- advocating for for the ideas of uh, you know individual rights. So, you know, uh, every Friday I think when you have the show, I've been somewhere else in the, on the globe, uh, giving a talk or doing a seminar, or, or alternatively trying to raise money for the institute. So, uh, engaged in the battle, in the war, I would say, engaged in the fight. Well, th- this is good. I guess we can excuse you for that. You know, when I talked to your assistant, it was weeks ago. And she said, it's, yeah. I, it's, it, you know, it, it's either September 6th or the end of December. And I said, oh, boy, but, you know, yeah. better put me on for, for both, actually. But, uh, you know, you just recently, I, I told you that I was watching uh, earlier today the talk that you did recently at the Steamboat Institute. That's in Colorado, right? Yes, it's uh, in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, a beautiful, beautiful place. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it is. It's gorgeous. I uh, lived a few years there. I d- definitely liked it. Now, am I right that you actually called for, potentially at least, the abandonment of the GOP and starting a third party? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I shouldn't really do politics because uh, the Institute is a 501c3, so I'm not really taking sides. But it, but what I said was I thought that people should start considering that as an option, that the, the GOP is so far gone, is so wrong on so many issues. Is is so pathetic, and it's an opposition to Obama and to Obama's agenda. That serious consideration should be given to a third party. Now, the downside risk there, of course, is early on in a third party, uh, it would give uh, it would give a lot of um, you know the likelihood of a Democrat winning uh, increases because because you're competing. It's a three-way race. The Democrats would probably win. Right. Uh, in the short term. So that that is a huge downside. The upside is, you know, to, to, to structure a party around principles of liberty, around principles of uh, freedom. And, you know, it wouldn't be an objectivist party. It wouldn't be a libertarian party. It would just be a much, much better, you know, 
version of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, a political party devoted to rolling back government. Really, you know, kind of the Tea Party, the better elements of the Tea Party agenda. Right. Um, and this was very much a Tea Party-like audience. So it was, um, it was a lot of Tea Party activists. It was a lot of people who support the Tea Party. But uh, so yeah, so I, I uh, it was interesting. Uh, the response was interesting. I think generally it was supportive. I think people are frustrated, upset about uh, with the Republican Party. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask you about was the reaction, and in particular the reaction to uh, what you said about social issues. You said that they should really just give up on the social issues and that it really isn't in line with a Republican Party that proposes to stand up for individual rights to say, okay, well, we want to tell you how to live your life according to our moral beliefs, right? You know, repeatedly I get positive responses to, with audiences when I bring this up. Now, maybe they're, they're afraid to challenge me, uh, you know, because I'm a pretty forceful speaker. And no. maybe, <laughs> maybe the, you know, I don't know what it is, but the general response, I'm not saying everybody, but the general response is positive. The, the, I, I said this, I, I gave two talks during that day uh, in Steamboat Springs, to, uh, and uh, in both of them I made this point about about the Republicans need to drop social issues. It's not the world of government. And the response was positive. And I wasn't excited. It wasn't overwhelmingly positive, but it was generally positive. I think there's a real, you know, a real potential for a real political agenda. Now, it has to have the right voice. It has to have it, it can be a mealy-mouthed approach, but, it, but a, an approach that says, look, we're going to disagree on social issues, but let's, let's, as part of our party, just say that this is not going to be, it's not a priority, and it's not going to be the thrust, and it's not the role of government. Let's just put it aside. We can debate the morality of these issues, but let's just get government, particularly the federal government, out of this discussion. Now, I, I, you know, the, I, I was going to say, I, I noticed that you focused in the talk that I watched on gay yeah. marriage, gay marriage. And I think gay marriage yeah. is something that's easier to sell than abortion, right? Yeah. As yeah. A, as a social issue that they should give up talking about. I mean, if they if they think you know, it's murder, I've, I've done right? this with the similar groups in Colorado. I've I brought up abortion. Uh and uh and uh, you know, it's surprising how much support you get, particularly from women in the audience. Mm -hmm. uh, for right to choose, and they, they're afraid to speak up because they get yelled down by the by the obnoxious uh, pro-lifers. But you know, I spoke in Colorado Springs once, and and brought up the issue of abortion and, and dealt with it directly, and and got cheering from the audience when I brought it up. Now it wasn't a majority of the audience, but it was a third to forty percent of the audience. There is a significant proportion of the audience that's either pro-choice explicitly. Or is just sick of the whole issue and wants to put it aside. And, and the problem is that they face real, committed, devoted anti-abortionists who are passionate and radical and willing to fight for this issue, and they can't they can't confront them. They can't challenge them because they they don't have the moral grounds to stand on. And they're not they don't feel they're not passionate pro-abortion people either, right? So yeah. so they fold. But when they hear somebody actually advocate for the case for a woman's right to choose, for, for, for the right to abortion, um, they actually respond positively. So, you know, some of them, again, not everybody, but some of them respond positively to it. So, so I'm, I, I have not completely given up on, on these groups, but they do need 
strong, committed leadership that's willing to say these things. And I think that's where the real failure is. There is no leadership. There's no intellectual leadership. There's no political leadership. There's nobody willing to stand up and actually call for these things. And as a consequence, they just they just follow the party line. They follow the dominant voices. Right. They go they go for the least bad that's already there without really trying to push in the in the right direction. Yes. So one thing that you said, you know, one thing I've been trying to do since you've been gone, since you've abandoned us, is divine what you might think about some of the issues that we've talked about. And one thing that you said in the Steamboat Springs, I think it was the the Q and A session, uh, you talked about the necessity of having hope for the future, even though we might lose, say, to Democrats in the interim, if we are pushing the Republican Party, say, if you know, if we stay within the Republican Party, if we push it in the extreme direction, at least the future will have hope, and that, that, that that's important. And I was saying the same thing to those people who criticize the effort to defund Obamacare, that... Ted Cruz, you know, in pushing to defund Obamacare, maybe he's going to fail. It's not going to do anything. It's going to make people mad, you know, et cetera. We might lose in 2014 because we're going to make people mad. But it's important to see somebody in the GOP or whatever the party of hope is actually standing for something or, you know, against something on principle and really, really pushing for it. What I mean, would you agree with me then that – yeah, no, I, I think that's good. I, I mean, I think that the, the problem that the Republicans face when they talk about defunding is that it's all about, it, it really does give the aura of, oh, they're just against everything. And where they where their mistake is, I mean, what the House Republicans should do is pass an alternative to Obamacare. They should put something on the table. Now, I know they don't want to do this because they don't want to be criticized for the particulars within that program. They want all the focus to be on the evil of Obamacare. But I think that long-term, that's a huge mistake. Uh, and, and I think the Republicans should pass a free market-oriented health care bill on the House, in the House. It's not going to go anywhere in the Senate, but at least there's something. And then they can tell the American people, we want to defund Obamacare because this is what we want. Mm-hmm. We're not just opposed to anything Obama does or anything, but we are, we are for this. We are for individual freedom. We are for... Uh, a healthy insurance, uh, you know, insurance market. We're for you having a private insurance contract with the insurance company, not through your employer. We're for certain principles in, of of of, of uh, healthcare policy, because otherwise they just come across as as naysayers, as as anti everything. What do you stand for? You 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 know, you want people with pre-existing conditions to die. You don't care. And they they have no answer to these questions unless they put a real proposal on the table, and I I think it's a mistake for them not to have done so. Okay, so so Ted Cruz is good insofar as he's been speaking out against letting this entitlement get entrenched and et cetera, but he should have added to it a call for the House Republicans to pass a free market alternative, and then he'd be doing a much better job. I think that's right. I mean, but it, this is, goes all across the Republicans, right? So, so they argue against the NSA, right? The, the better Republicans, the Cruises and the and Rand Pauls and everything. But they don't answer the question. Well, what do we do about about Islamic terrorism? You know, and indeed they would have us do nothing. So, you know, but but imagine how much more powerful the argument against the NSA would be if they said, like I have said many times, we don't need to listen to people. We know who the bad guys is. Let's go 
kill him and come home. Right. right. Let's go destroy the bad guys and come home. And then there's no, and then we can do away with the Patriot Act. We can get all away with all the stuff. The NSA is evil. It's bad. But but we recognize there's a real threat out there. This is how we would deal with it. Yeah. No. And you don't say that. So 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 they lose those people who really do care about the issue of 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 the Islamic threat. Right. Right. No. I and I agree 100. percent And I thank you for giving me the natural transition into the main topic that I wanted to talk to you about. Although I, I, I wanted, lost, I wanted. I lost you there, Amy. No. I said I thank you for giving me the the natural transition into the topic that I really wanted to okay. focus on here today, which is foreign policy and and Syria. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to get at least a couple of follow ups to your stuff in Steamboat. Because by the way, if you haven't seen his talk at Steamboat, go to Yaron Brooks' Facebook page. And scroll down. He posts quite a bit, but if you scroll down a bit, you'll see a big frame, and you'll be able to watch that talk. It was really, really excellent. So let, let's go and on. And everybody should like me on Facebook and, and follow oh, yeah. me on Twitter. Oh yeah, always. And, <laughs> and, I, and if you if you're on, uh, you know, everybody kind of follows along on my blog for the the show. And on my blog today at don'tletitgo.com, I have links to both your own's Facebook and Twitter, plus his blog, plus his book. All the all the stuff to get at him there. So go go ahead and find that. So let's let's get into Syria just to set context. If you're talking about getting into military engagement in a country, what is the overall standard, the proper standard for deciding whether to get involved in a country militarily? Well, is the country a threat to the United States? Is it is it endangering the lives of the United States? Or is it a threatening to endanger the lives of American citizens? Uh, is they are they you know destroying American property? Uh, are they are they you know taking our ships or our people hostage? Are they are they hurting the individual rights of Americans, uh, or are they threatening to do so? And and the fact is that that uh, Assad, as much as he is an evil dictator. Um, you know, has never directly hurt uh, American um, uh, American lives or American property. Uh, he has not threatened to do so. Uh, you know, he he is clearly an enemy of Israel, and Israel is an ally of ours. But Israel can take care of him. Uh, you know, America doesn't have to be involved in order to take care of Assad. Israel is quite competent. All Israel needs from us is kind of political uh, support, and and that we won't condemn anything that they do. Right. But Israel should be taking out his chemical weapons. Israel should be taking out his, his military capabilities if they think it's in their self-interest. And that's a, that's a complex evaluation they have to go through because of what the alternative is. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't send billions of dollars worth of ammunition, which is what they will do if they launch cruise missiles, and you don't, and you certainly don't send young Americans and, and risk their lives unless there is a real threat to America, to the individual rights of Americans. And in this case, there is none. Right. Now, you have said a number of times, and you said it during your Steamboat talk as well, that we really don't have a foreign policy when it comes to the Middle East. Now, some people think that we actually have, at least under Obama, a pro-Islamic foreign policy, or is that just the effect of what we've been doing? What do, what do you think, Yaron? Well, again, I think it's an exaggeration to call it pro-Islamic in the sense that, you know, we're not 
we're not sending weapons to the Iranians. We're not we're not giving them uh, money. Uh, you know, we're, we're still supportive of Israel for the most part. I, it's just it's it, it is there is no foreign policy. You know, so Obama. You know, hates Israel, but he he doesn't quite have the guts to completely disassociate himself from him. So he supports them partially because he has to secure the Jewish vote for the Repub- for the Democratic Party. You know, he, he liked the Muslim Brotherhood, but he wouldn't come all out to defend the Muslim Brotherhood. So he kind of helped them along a little bit, but then when they were kicked out, he's not really upset at the military that much. He's he's he's, he's okay with the military guys. He condemns them here and there. But we're still sending them the money, and we're not we're not stopping foreign aid. You know, the relationship with the Saudis really hasn't changed. The Iranians, you know, the the the, the um, uh, uh, what do you call it? The trade uh, the, the trade restrictions on Iran are a little tougher on Obama than they were under Bush. Uh, and uh, and so the, the, he's not he's not supportive of Iran, but he's not really tough on Iran either. He's a little bit more than Bush and less than others. Iraq. He withdrew from Iraq completely, but one could argue that given the mess that Bush created in Iraq, the right strategy was to withdraw. Um, you know, in every one of these cases, what's the strategy? Is there strategy? There's no strategy. It's a, it's an emotion-driven mishmash of pragmatic, you know, actions that is generally, you know, inspired by Obama's kind of egalitarian, nihilistic attitude towards all things but he can't actually manifest it in any consistent or significant way so it's kind of a little poke here a little poke there but generally driven by emotion you know by by whatever seems right in the moment by pragmatism that's what pragmatism is well what what about this in terms of a pragmatic motive some people have said Obama's not really earnest or honest about his motives for wanting to get involved in Syria. Really, all he's trying to do is cover up all those scandals, IRS, Benghazi, right, you know, all all of that. Uh, Do you think that he's earnest in his kind of altruistic intentions and, you know, all about the, the, you know, the gas attacks and his humanitarian mission? No, of course not. None of these guys are. Who's ever earnest about, which politician is really earnest about their altruism? No, this is this is a form of manipulation. Uh, it's a power play. You know, every president has to have kind of his war. Uh, it's it's a diversion. You know, he, there's been a lot of scandals. They've come one after the other. They, they, they've they I think they've hurt his administration. They've distracted. There's also this whole um, uh, budget uh, discussion that's coming up in Congress in the fall. He'd love to. He'd love to divert attention from the from the Republican agenda there. The defunding and problems with Obamacare. He'd love to divert attention from that. So yeah, I, I definitely think this is a diversion, and it's also, you know, he can be presidential, right? Although, of course, given that it's Obama, he undercuts that immediately by going to Congress or something. Um, so it's it's this again. It's a hash. It's 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 cover up. It's uh, altruistic kind of uh, tendencies, and it's a power play. It's it's a combination of all of those. Now, remember that the people he's recently appointed, I think the woman he appointed to be his uh, security advisor, I forget her name, um, is a, is it, is is a real Jared? kind of uh, uh, oh, right, American, right, yeah. should be the policeman of the world. She, she's really, she was really upset that we didn't intervene in Rwanda. And help you know when the Rwanda massacre was going on. So she's a big, big advocate 
for you, you, the United States using its military for humanitarian aid around the world. So there is that kind of internationalist, um, humanitarian, uh, altruistic aspect that is driven by some of his advisors, which I think he he buys into uh, to some extent. And um, and you know, and I, I think he wants to use American military power to. To, to increase the perception of his him as a good guy. Right. Now, what what about this whole issue with using chemical weapons? Do you think that it's just a whole proxy? I mean, what, what, you know, what's going on? Is it is it really a red line? Is it does it matter whether they use a certain type of weapon? Should it matter in a proper foreign policy what type of weapon your enemy uses? What, what what's going on with that? Well, this is why I said this is completely emotional. This is ridiculous. I mean, the Civil War has been going on for two years. They've killed tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Both sides have done horrible things to civilians. They've killed people on camera. This is not hidden. And, and, and again, this is both sides. Both sides are barbaric here. And uh, suddenly they use chemical weapons, so that's somehow different than killing other people. Now, you have to grant the fact that chemical weapons are horrific. That dying from a chemical weapons attack is a horrible, horrible way to die. One of the worst you can imagine for any human being. So, so it is, in that sense, different. But you're still killing people. You're still killing civilians for no reason. Um, and therefore, it should be condemned. But does that mean, does that turn it into an American interest somehow? Does that change the dynamic of the civil war in Syria. No, it just means Assad is a, you know, is is even more horrible human being than we thought he was before, right? But it doesn't change any American interest there. It doesn't make this suddenly important for America, and it wasn't important before. Nothing has changed in the Syrian civil war to justify American intervention. Now, what's the deal with this red line? Um, so, yeah, Obama suggested, he never really said it, but he suggested in a speech uh, at some point that if chemical weapons were used, that would change his approach to the conflict. Mm -hmm. and, and in a sense, that was his red line. Um, and if the President of the United States says something like that, that's important. That That is not something you can say, well, who cares? That is a major event that is a major issue of credibility and something has to happen that is something has to be done there are two options one is you have to execute on the threat you have to do something or you have to say sorry I made a mistake that red line shouldn't have been drawn and here's why right um, it reminds me of what Ayn Rand said about Vietnam um, so Rand said, look, you can't just leave Vietnam and say, you know, we lost, right? Whoops, we lost, we're coming home. She said, you have to leave Vietnam, but you have to leave Vietnam and at the same time say, we're leaving Vietnam because the war in Vietnam serves no self-interest of the United States. But you, know, you world know this. If ever you threaten the security of the United States, we will crush you. So, so don't take this as a sign of weakness that we're leaving. Take this as a sign of strength. We are now committed 
and refocused on American security. Right. And that's what needs to be done now. Somebody has to retract Obama's red line. And they have to say, we're retracting this red line. But just know, this is not a sign of weakness. We are committed 100% to American security. And by the way, here's proof. Iran, you have 72 hours to blow up your own nuclear facilities or we will do it for you. <laughs> that's right. That's what should be done. And, 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 and that's this whole issue of weakness. This, you know, the other thing is this proxy war, which is so, I mean, I can't understand how anybody can talk about this proxy thing with a straight face, right? So we really want to hurt Iran because Iran are the real bad guys. So we're going to attack Syria because if we attack Syria, that'll hurt Iran. Yeah, I mean, and how's that going to work out, you know? Well, it doesn't matter how it works out. If you if Iran are the bad guys and Iran is a threat and you want to hurt Iran, attack Iran. It's not like Iran's this like the Soviet Union, this powerful nuclear power that you can't afford to offend. Just go and do what's necessary in Iran, get rid of the threat, and you're finished. Right. Now that would be your choice, Iran first. I mean I know you mentioned in Steamboat you mentioned Iran and Saudi Arabia as the two primary hotbeds of the enemy. And so you think Iran would be the the preferred target, and then warn Saudi Arabia? Uh, yeah, I don't I, I don't see any need to go to war with Saudi Arabia. I mm -hmm. think all we need to do with Saudi Arabia is threaten them, and they will jump. Uh, so uh, Saudi Arabia is the government of Saudi Arabia is non ideological. The government of Saudi Arabia is a hundred percent pragmatic, and the government of Saudi Arabia has made 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 this this deal. It 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 it. It uh, pretends to be the West's friend, and it sells all to the U.S., and it, it's very friendly to American businesses, and it's very friendly to American presidents, and it does all these nice. I'm sure we get intelligent corporation, intelligence corporation with them, and they, they stamp out the most radical aspects of al-Qaeda, and they work with us and all that. And at the same time, they fund the Wahhabi ideology. They fund Islamic terrorism. They fund uh, the, you know, Islamic totalitarianism, the ideology all over the world. And as long as they can get away with that duality, then they appease the radicals within their own kingdom, and they appease the Americans, and everybody leaves them alone. Somebody has to change that equation, and, and the only way to change that equation is, to, is for the Americans to tell the, the Saudis, you stop funding the Wahhabis, you stop funding the, the exportation of this ideology across the world, you stop funding terrorism, we will hold you responsible for every dollar spent by these terrorist organizations, and you do it tomorrow. And they will change, They will, particularly if they see us as serious about the threat. Right now, they don't. Uh, but if they see us about the threat, then they, then they will stop because they want to survive, and they know without America's support, they cannot survive. Right, right. I mean, heaven forbid we should start drilling our own oil here and, and kill their market and stuff. Let, let's get back to well, 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 let's 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 be accurate there. Drilling our oil here will not kill the Saudis' market. Uh, the Saudis will still sell oil. Oil is, a, is is sold on a world market. It doesn't depend on the U.S. buying. So the whole idea of energy independence is nonsense. There's no such okay. thing. There's a world market for energy, and, and you can buy it anyway. Now, what would happen if we drilled here is prices would go down. But they wouldn't go down so much that the Saudis wouldn't still make a huge amount of money. They would. But what we provide the Saudi kingdom is with security. I mean, it's, it's American weapons. It's American AWACS planes that fly over the Gulf. 
It's the American fleet that protects their coasts. It's America that, that is, it's, um, we went to war with Iraq in 1991 to protect Saudi Arabia. You know, it's, they, they know, and this is a deal that, by the way, FDR cut with them during World War II, is that they supply us with oil and we protect them. And, you know, so we need to withdraw that protection as long as they are, we should withdraw it anyway, but certainly as long as they are funding our enemies. Of course. Now, let, let's get back to Syria. The one argument that you hear that is, you know, most plausible in favor of getting involved in Syria is the one that Jonathan Honig typed into the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio. He says, own, what about our obligation to help the children dying in the chemical weapons attacks? Aren't their lives worth just as much as American lives? If you think so, you can go volunteer and help them. But it's not the role of American government to help those kids. So, so you can, if you value Syrian lives as much as your children's lives, you can go fly overseas and join join the opposition in Syria and go fight fight Assad. But I don't think so. I mean, my kids are more valuable to me than than Syrian kids, and the kids of, in my neighborhood are to me more valuable than the Syrian kids. It doesn't mean the Syrian kids are not valuable. It doesn't mean their life is not an end in itself, just like every human life is. They're in a, they're, it's a tragic situation, but it's not my moral responsibility. It's not my moral duty to go and save them. My moral duty is to live my life the best life that I can live. And it, it's wrong. I mean, this is the question you have to ask yourself. Are you willing to go volunteer? Are you willing to put your boots, your boots, not somebody else's boots, on the ground in Syria? and fight against Assad? Are you willing to risk your life for those kids? And, and it, I'm, not, I'm not willing to send my kid, so what right do I have to demand that my government, government send somebody else's kids to, to fight for this? So it, it, it's not the role of the U.S. government to go out and protect innocent people out there from the atrocities that people commit against them. And this is true of you know, think about what happens every day in Africa. Things are, should we use the Marines to protect Arab women from uh, female genital mutilation, which is a horrific, barbaric, hard to imagine crime that mm-hmm. is committed against these little girls every day in, in, in the Arab world? Um, is it our duty to do that? I feel for them. I'm sad because this is happening in the world. Their life is important. Their, their, their ability to have sexual pleasure in the future is important. But am I willing to, to, to go and fight for that? No. The fact is I'm not. And, and I think and it's nothing about Syrians. I, you know, let's make this clear. It, during World War II, six million Jews were being killed in ovens. Do I think it was right for American troops to go fight in Europe in order to save them? My answer is no. Uh, the U.S. Sh- should not have intervened in World War II unless it viewed Hitler as a direct threat to the rights of Americans. Now, again, Americans who cared about the Jews dying there, and everybody should have to some extent, but those who were willing to fight for it could have gone and volunteered to fight with the British. Right. Now, that is pretty controversial to say. You, as someone who has a Jewish background, to say, no, we shouldn't have gotten involved in World War II, even though they were engaging in the mass murder. We should have gotten involved in World War II for the purpose of stopping Hitler from killing six million Jews. That should not have been the purpose. Right. The purpose should have been defending America from Hitler's, uh, you know, aggression against us. And, and of course, Hitler declared war against the U.S., so we had no choice. But, uh, but you know, so that is the focus of the government has one job, 
and one job only, and that is to protect the individual rights of its own citizens. You know, the, 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 the rights, and, and that's hard enough, and our government is not doing a very good job of that at all. It's doing a horrible job. It's become the biggest violator of our rights today in the world. So for the, for the U.S. government then to say, no, we're going to protect the rights of everybody everywhere in the world, then it's a world government, and you might as well then just occupy the world and have the U.S. government run the whole world. You know, and that's the only way you could truly do it. But to become the policeman of the world, why? I mean, it's just, it's not the U.S. government's responsibility. It's responsibilities towards its own citizens and nobody else. Jonathan, that shouldn't violate anybody else's rights out there in the world. No. You know, just like, just like Iran's ethics, you don't sacrifice for anybody else, and you don't have anybody else sacrifice for you. The American government should not sacrifice its uh, uh, treasure and its lives for the sake of other countries, and it shouldn't ask other countries to sacrifice themselves for the U.S. No, exactly. Now, there's another argument being uh, put forth in the chat room here. Someone, G. Nelly 01, so new person listening to the show, hello, welcome to the show, uh, asks, Yaron, what about the argument that Syrians might give chemical weapons to terrorists who might use them against the United States? What about that argument? Well, I mean, if there was evidence of that, then then do it. But it, look, um, this is a fact, historical fact. Syria has had chemical weapons for since um, the 1970s. Now, I know this because I was in Israeli mili military intelligence in the in 81 and 82, and we knew that the Syrians had chemical weapons, uh, and we, we trained against it. It, it, it. This was not a conjecture. This was fact. Uh, so Syria's had these weapons for over 30 years. Wow, I'm old, aren't I? Because <laughs> um, that was 30 years ago. It, it, for 30 years. And it, they haven't given it to terrorist organizations. They haven't used it against Israel. They haven't used it against the U.S. Unless there's some intelligence to suggest that they're giving it to Hezbollah. And if they are giving it to Hezbollah, then we should give the Israelis a green light to destroy that. And, and you know that there have been, Israel has bombed Syria several times in the last few months. And, and those are times where Israel thought that the Syrians were handing over weapons to Hezbollah or doing things that represented threats to the state of Israel. And Israel did what was necessary. They bombed them. I don't know if you remember, but three years ago, Israel bombed this isolated facility in the desert in Syria. And what they bombed, it turns out, was a nuclear facility. Mm. They, the Syrians were trying to develop nuclear weapons with North Korean help. And the Israelis took it out. Good yeah. for them. And, and I, I hope the U.S. helped them do it. So the U.S. are quite capable of taking care of this without uh, – the Israel is quite capable of taking care of this without uh, Americans doing it. But again, if there was a, a real threat, if, if there was evidence that, 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 that the chemical weapons were being used by terrorists or that they were developing a nuclear program that would be used against the U.S., then I'd be for the U.S. attacking Syria. But there's no such evidence, at least none that I'm aware of and none that, that anybody's um, arguing for. I don't see Obama arguing for this. I don't see McCain arguing for this. Uh, you know, that would be a self-interested argument, and none of them would be caught dead making a self-interested argument. For no, no, of course not, of course not. Yeah, Jonathan's follow-up was attacking Syria is perfect for Obama because we get nothing out of it. It's a purely altruist argument. Uh, you know, if we do get involved, who is it that we would be helping? Who are these rebels anyway? Well, of course, that's the other side of this. Uh, to the extent that us bombing the Syrian regime helps the rebels, it's important to know who they are. Now, 
there are elements within uh, these rebels who are, you know, kind of liberal, liberal in the in the in the classical sense that are that are pro in you know pro Western values in a broad sense. But I suspect, and I don't have detailed information about this, but I suspect that that is a very small minority uh, of the rebels. Um, most of the rebels that, that the administration and others called moderate are probably Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, you know, uh, this is the, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the fountainhead of Al-Qaeda. These are Islamists who believe that they will be successful not through terrorism and violence, but through the political process, uh, kind of the Egyptian form of the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and uh, you know, they're very, they were the dominant opposition force in Syria again for 30 years uh, Assad's father had to de- Bashir Assad's father uh, had to deal with them dealt with them in the 1980s by, by killing about 40,000 Syrians you know again nobody nobody said anything back then right. about 40,000 Syrians to, to suppress a revolt by the Muslim Brotherhood so most of the so-called moderates I think are, are Muslim Brotherhood then you get what everybody acknowledges of the, the radicals, you know, the 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 the, the uh, Al Qaeda, uh, uh, violent Islamists who are aligned with Al Qaeda, and that is probably a minority, but it's an important minority because they have, in a sense, the moral high ground. They are the consistent Islamists. The Muslim Brotherhood, in the end, has to move in that direction. Uh, you know, if it ever gets in a position of power. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood again is not moderate. They would impose some kind of Sharia law in in uh, in uh, Syria and make it far bigger enemy of the United States and Israel than the Assads ever were. I mean, this was the mistake we made in in Iraq, right? We went in and deposed the secular thug who was a monster, but who really was not actively engaged in uh, in uh, aggression against the United States mm-hmm. and replaced him with a regime that now is is buddies with the Syrians on the on the Shiite side that they sorry buddies with the Iranians and far bigger threat to the US than they ever were before and on the Sunni side the Sunnis have been radicalized and are in a line now with with forces close to Al Qaeda so Iraq is much more dangerous for American interests long term than it was under Saddam Hussein, and we created it. And if we go into uh, Syria, or if we don't go into it, if we just bomb them and, and help in any way the opposition, we will be helping create another uh, Iraq in, uh, in Syria, another uh, host- place, place that is radic- violently hostile to, to U.S. interests. Look, the best thing I've said this I've said this many times. That the best thing for America and for Israel is for the civil war to continue forever. Now, granted, that's horrific for the innocents and the, the, the women and children on the ground in Syria, but that's the Syrians' fault, right? It's not our fault. But the fact is that the longer the civil war goes, the more distracted they are, the weaker they will become. Uh, and the less time they have to plan plots against Israel or the United States. So, you know, we should step back and, and, and leave them to their own violent devices. Right. I think this is why some people say, well, our foreign policy ends up being pro-Islamic in the sense that that's been the effect in country after country where we've gotten involved. We have helped to unseat these secular thugs with the result that somebody who is, 
you know, more religious takes over. I mean, that's been the effect. And how long can someone like Obama fool himself and say, oh, you know, I'm just doing something altruistic to help the children. And, you know, I don't really have an aim of putting these Islamic guys. That's just the effect of giving them democratic rule or whatever. When country after yeah, country, but, but you know, remember that this is. This is Bush's policy. This isn't Obama's policy. So if you're going to make anybody sure. pro-Islamist, it's Bush, not, not, not Obama. Obama's just following up on Bush's strategy, which is the forward strategy for freedom, which meant bringing democracy to the Middle East, uh, in, you know, letting them vote. Whoever they vote for is fine with the United States. It's Bush that encouraged Israel to allow Hamas as a political party to run in the Palestinian Authority. It's Bush that put huge amounts of pressure on Mubarak to allow elections in Egypt and in Jordan, and ultimately everywhere else. The Arab Spring, or, or what I consider the, the Arab Deep Winter, is, is a consequence of Bush's policies. And to the extent that Islamists are winning the day, this is Bush's fault. Obama just inherited it and is making the most of it with his pragmatic, you know. Look, Obama's, Obama, all Obama wants to do, I mean, this is where this philosophy comes in, is, is kind of uh, egalitarian nihilism. All Obama wants to do is make America look weak and pathetic. That's really his motivation. His motivation is not, in my view, is not to help Islamists. It's not to help this. It's not altruism. It's hatred for America. So everything he does is perfect, right? You know, he draws red lines that he's not going to quite live up to. He sends, he says he's going to... This, the attack on Syria is not going to be a serious attack. It's just going to be a pinprick. He tells them in advance that this is what it's going to be. He makes us look ridiculous and pathetic. You know, he sends it to Congress because he knows that in Congress they'll fight it out and it'll make Republicans look bad and Democrats look bad. Remember, this guy is primarily motivated by hatred. He hates America. That's his primary motivation. So it's not that he's pro-Islamist, it's, it's that he's anti-American. And, 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 you know, I said this when he first ran, that he is the first anti-American president in, in, in history. Mm -hmm. And he's living up to that, and this is another example of it. I, I just I find it remarkable that we're talking about an American president who is actually anti-American. Uh, one quick more specific question before we wrap up foreign policy. Someone in the chat room here asks, what should be done about Pakistan? Nothing. They they should be left to rot. Um, you know, we, we should we should have militarily um, contingencies to secure to secure whatever nuclear weapons they already have. Uh, we should work with the Indian government in order to do that. The Indians are the, the people most concerned about the Pakistani nuclear capability, uh, but they already have nukes. So so we need to work with the Indians to have contingency plans that if the Pakistani government falls into the wrong hands, uh, and, and there's a risk of deploying nuclear weapons against India or against Western targets. You know, the U.S. and India together, you know, uh, secure those facilities. Um, but other than that, I don't think we should do anything with Pakistan. Again, if uh, if they make threatening sounds like. Al Qaeda establishes bases there. Uh, they start plotting missions against the U.S. and go in and destroy whatever needs to be destroyed to make it clear to them that we will not tolerate Al Qaeda establishing themselves on their property. But look, if we took care of Iran and we withdraw Saudi funding, then it's all over because Pakistan is one of the poorest countries in the world. 
it, it, the, the radicals survive in Pakistan only because of Saudi funding and, and Iranian funding. And, and if we took away Iran and Saudi from the equation, I strongly believe most of the threats in the Middle East to the United States would crumble. Okay. And that was going to be kind of my follow-up, wrap-up question, which is here we are. We're almost 12 years after 9-11. We're still facing the same threat on different fronts all over the world. I, I would say very little progress, if any, has been made. Maybe it's been made worse. And that's what you would do, right? You would address Iran and Saudi Arabia and kind of watch the rest fall like dominoes? Yeah, and maybe they won't fall, but what they would do is they would cower. And, and look, American foreign policy in the Middle East should be focused on one thing, and that is fear. You want to, you want to put the fear of Allah into governments and, and entities in the Middle East not to piss us off, right, because, because, because the consequences are so horrific to them that uh, they just won't dare. And that's it. You want to, you want to, you want to give Israel... You know, you want to give them a clear shot at whatever whatever they need in order to defend themselves. They should do, and then you need to put the fear of Allah into uh, into the rest of the Middle East, and then leave it alone. <laughs> what is that? We we have applause here in the background from Bosch. <laughs> Bosch likes uh, the fear of Allah, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think I think we're all in favor of getting you that Hawaiian birth certificate that you mentioned huh. in Steamboat as well. So you know. We're, we're, we 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 got our best uh, forgers working on it, and the N the NSA people who are listening on the line right now won't say a word. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I know the NSA knows everything. There's no way I can get away. I, with I usually I usually you know, if, if, I was gonna say I usually if welcome. If there was them. any momentum, any true momentum behind behind the Iran Brook presidency, I would conveniently disappear or get killed in a car accident. <laughs> Oh gosh! Um, the forces to be would not allow for and would not allow it. Well, then in the, in that regard, and I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, people. This is just the U.S. government. Oh my gosh! Okay, well that there's a, there's a bombshell. Let's let's not let's not take that out of context. This is this is humor, people. Humor. Uh, okay, let's let's ask you a, a question on just practical politics more broadly. Recently, I don't think you've had a chance to read the book yet, but you've heard of the concept of Mark Levin's Liberty Amendments, whereby he says, let's go ahead and put together conventions around the states to propose amendments to the Constitution. Uh, suppose you have some good practical amendments that included you know, term limits and other things that would have good effects in terms of getting all the horrible career politicians who just spend and spend and grow government, if you could get them out of Washington by doing this, do you think that's a good strategy? Is it is it something worth promoting, or is it something that would be, you know, one front to fight on and then we need to still fight on a lot of other fronts? How, how do you see something like that? You know, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of it primarily because I think that it, it won't change that much. I mean, I think it's all they're all good ideas. Uh, if, if, they, if somebody could make that happen, they were all good ideas. They would slow decline down. They, they wouldn't reverse decline, but they would slow it down. Of course, how would you get these even approved? How would you have to get three quarters of the state to have these conventional things, and they would have to pass it? I mean, the world would have to change so dramatically just to get to the point where these were passed that you wouldn't need them at that point. So you, you think right. even even today, I mean, I think his idea is that if you took a state-by-state -state basis, there's more pro-freedom 
people state by state, and then it's the but more... You still have to do three-quarters of the states, yeah. if I remember right. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and pre-freedom people, how pro-freedom are they? So, yeah, okay, so let's say you could even do this. So, first of all, I don't think you could do it, because I don't think there are enough pro-freedom people out there to do it. But let's say you could do it, and you actually had them in three-quarters of the state. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would be great, and it would slow the decline down. But would anybody's ideas change? Would, would the vast majority of this country, the fact that the vast majority of this country is statist, would that fact change? No, none of that would change, and we would drift. I mean, look, California has term limits. I mean, yeah. you'd think you'd be, we'd, be, we'd be living in heaven. We don't. Yeah. Term limits have made no difference in California. Well, and in, they, in fact, I think... Arguably, uh, they've made things worse. Yeah, we've, we've termed out some decent people like Chuck DeVore, who was doing some good work. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... Yeah. It's been pretty yeah, so it's not clear to me that there's any mechanical gimmicky way to save it. Now, I'm not opposed to fighting for this, and you know my view is let the conservatives do that. You know, let them focus on fighting this fight because uh, once they get into the battle ideas, they're pathetic. So maybe this is something they can focus on some technical st- stuff. But um, but we have to. I, I I don't I don't think it's worthwhile spending time advocating for this. Our job is to advocate for the ideas that are necessary in order to establish liberty and establish freedom. The mechanisms, the exact constitutional mechanism by which this will happen, you know, let other people worry about. I do have someone who's on the line, but go ahead and type your question into the chat room if you'd like me to ask the question of your own Brooke. One thing I want to ask you, and this is something that we always ask you periodically, are we on the brink of collapse yet? Uh, the, the news that I just saw today was that we've got a weak jobs report, and we're in this perverse situation where a weak jobs report spurs a recovery in the stock market because the stock market is anticipating that the Fed's going to continue to keep pumping billions of dollars of stimulus. We're in a really bad way, and Obamacare is about to be implemented fully. Are we going to turn into Greece next year, or, or what's going on, Your own? I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think that making predictions in terms of timing of these things is helpful because I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain to be wrong no matter what I say. Um, I don't see it imminent. I don't think it's going to happen imminently. I mean, yes, the job reports were bad, but we didn't see a shrinkage of jobs. It just the jobs grew 162,000. Economists expected 175,000. The real bad news is they revised the previous two months down by 75,000, which right. is a lot. But it's still growth. Two million jobs have been added in the economy over the last 12 months. That's not good news, but it's not horrible news. Uh, yes, the Fed is still printing money like there's no tomorrow. We're going to pay a price for that. Yes, Dodd-Frank is going to kill the financial business. Yes, the economy is put- puttering along. In a, But... You know, so, you know, I just, I, I think that the, the number of different scenarios that could happen, but certainly we could be putzing along for the next five, six, seven, eight years without a collapse happening. And, and I think there are a lot of things in America that prevent the kind of collapse that we saw in Greece or we, you could potentially see in other places in Europe from happening in the U.S. I just don't see us going from where we are today to, you know, 30% unemployment and people people ravished completely and, and riots in the streets. I don't see that happening quickly in the United States. There's too much wealth here. 
there's too much production actually happening. There's too many productive people. There's too many people actually making stuff and creating stuff for for that kind of doomsday scenario to happen. I I think we're in for just a slow, painful, irritating decline, and then a collapse. But but the collapse is a way out still, I think. And that, that doesn't mean that the stock market won't be down 25% next year. Who knows? I'm just saying I, I don't I, I don't make those kind of predictions. I'm just saying that from the perspective of your quality of life, you know, it's not going to be the – I don't think it's going to be the Great Depression next year. I, I, but I don't think we're going to have this magnificent recovery. I think we're, we're going to continue to go up and down in a horrible, depressing kind of way. And, uh, and yes, the collapse will come, but I think it's still out there. So probably a decade away. You know, with respect to the the one element, Obamacare and the implementation, I got to say that some of the effects of Obamacare in terms of destroying the insurance market is happening faster than even I expected, and I was kind of pessimistic about it. So, for example, you hear about... So ins- they'll expand Medicare, and they'll, and they'll have Medicare cover all of us. I mean, they'll they'll basically shift to right. European single-payer model. You know, they'll probably have a dual system where... Where if you want, you'll be able to have private health care, and then most people who won't be able to afford private health care will get, in a sense, Medicare. And, you know, it'll be horrible for the people on it, but, you know, people in Europe are not dying like flies in the streets. It's horrible for them. It's horrible for the doctors. It's one more giant step towards, uh, you know, completely losing all of our rights and and so on. But they, but they, my point is that the world won't end. Um, and that the fight will continue, and that it's just one more big step down the slippery slope towards oblivion, but oblivion won't actually happen within the next year because of Obamacare. Yes, the insurance markets will be destroyed, and the only solution for that will be socialized medicine. But look, every Western country in the world has socialized medicine, and they're alive. They're not thriving. We won't thrive. We'll have horrible health care. Our lives are going to be miserable, but the end of the world is not around the corner. The end of the world for us, though, might be right. You know, when you talk about the end of the world per se, but the end of the world. Well, let, let's let's focus in the last few minutes on some things that are more positive. And I listened to I can't remember who it was one of your excellent videos or one of the podcasts that you do uh, on Leonard Peikoff's blog. But you had mentioned basically how you learn to pursue values in a situation like this. That you basically say, look, I'm going to fight to improve the world or, you know, at least survive in the world, make it as good as possible for us, for our kids, etc. But that in the meantime, you take pleasure in pursuing values here and now. So of late, your own, what have you taken pleasure in in terms of values? Any art you want to recommend, something you've read, something you've seen? Ah, oh, man, you caught me unprepared. Oh, no. Um. <laughs> A, a great, a, a great, a great meal you ate at a great restaurant. Uh, Some place you think we should go visit. Ugh, I hate these kind of personal questions. Um, Sorry. No, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of good stuff out there to to be enjoyed. There are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of good old movies that that uh, you know people should dig out with a sense, with a positive, fun sense of life. Go look for for the movies of Ernst Lubitsch, the the, the great comedy director. You know, it's just a, a different universe, a post-19th century universe and sense of life and sense of human nobility and what, what was possible and what should be made fun of and what shouldn't be made fun of. 
you know, the, the, the fact is that we're, we're at a period in, in Western civilization where the food has never, ever been better. I mean, there's so much money being spent right now on gourmet restaurants, on great chefs, on creating magnificent meals that I'm sure wherever you live, you can find a great restaurant and go and, go and really enjoy some, some high-quality, you know, tasty, incredibly tasty food. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things uh, that are good out there. You know, I, I just, uh, we just expanded our family room and, and uh, installed two more speakers. So now I have seven speakers to my AV system. And, uh, you know, it's fun to blast a movie on my 82-inch uh, uh, television screen with seven speakers blurring. It's good, and, and let me let me let me note the final point, and that is, the Red Sox have a chance of winning the World Series. Oh God! <laughs> they have got a phenomenal team this year, and it is fun to watch. <laughs> all the Yankee fans, I'm going to have all these people are going to unfriendly on on Facebook, and I'm going to draw people because objectives tend to be Yankee fans, and I am a. And now, and now, and now, Red Sox fan. Well, yeah, and now, and now, Bosch wants to throw in your face. What about the Celtics? What is their What are their chances right now? Oh, forget basketball right now. We're in baseball season, and at the end of the day, baseball is the American sports. And I can see a whole other group of objectivists rejecting me now. But you know, and I can give a little lecture on why baseball is so American. It is the the the, the most American of all the sports. Maybe that's something we'll have to do when I get you back. What <laughs> way way back in December or something? So so what are you yeah. up to now? Where do you where do you travel next? What talks are you giving? Oh, uh, what is my next speaking engagement? Um, well, I, I'll be in New York in a couple of weeks. We've got a big fundraising dinner in New York um, at the St. Regis Hotel. I encourage uh, everybody. Uh, to come, it's expensive, but the money all goes to a really good cause. It goes to funding the Iron Man Institute and funding all our activities. Um, and it's a it's a great fun event. You've been, uh, you mm-hmm. and Bosch have been um, yeah. in the past. And uh, and I think I'm speaking to a Tea Party group in New York that week. The details are still up in the air. And then you know the fall starts with a lot of kind of campus visits. Uh, I'll be speaking in Chicago at something called Chicago Ideas Week. I'll be giving two talks today, very prestigious um, speaking events, uh, unusual crowd for me. It, it'll probably lean more left center than what I'm what I'm used to in terms of public audiences, but very large audiences. I'll probably speak on a campus in Chicago. And then I do a, a trip through uh, kind of Europe and the Middle East. So um, uh, I'll speak in Israel. I'll speak in Iceland. I'll speak in London. I'll speak in Greece, and I'll speak in Bulgaria. Excellent. Wow. That's great. But yeah, definitely I would love to see you on more college campuses because as you said at Steamboat, we really do have to get the younger people on board. I don't I don't know if you were right about the average age out there, but it is true. I think the people who hold a lot of the ideas that we share tend to be older and we need to get a principled message out to the younger audiences. So I'm glad to see that you're going to do a lot of that this fall. So everyone, uh, you need to follow Yaron Brook on Facebook, on Twitter. Go ahead and go get his book if you haven't done it already. I think that that's a real black mark yeah, on it's your... Yeah, it's coming out in soft cover next week. 
Oh, okay. So, so uh, for 10 bucks, you can get the book now on Amazon. I, th I think that's the link that I have there on my blog. So go ahead and go grab yeah. that book at Amazon, Free Market Revolution, which he co-authored with Don Watkins. And you can check out their blog at capitalism.einrand.org. Yaron, thank you so much for joining us again. And, uh, my pleasure. We will we'll do it again. Yeah, we'll soon. talk to you soon. You take care. Sounds good. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, everyone, that hour... It always goes by so quickly. Uh, Bosch, come on over. Now, I've got Bosch Boston here in the studio with me. This is Don't Let It Go Unheard. You have been listening for the whole first hour to Jerome Brokey, President and Executive Director of the Ayn Rand Institute. And now I'm joined by cartoonist Bosch Faustin. Hello, everyone. Any uh, reactions to what he said? I, I was I was really impressed because, you know, remember how I've been defending Ted Cruz. Yeah. Uh, in terms of his wanting to defund Obamacare and saying how principled he is. But well, Yaron is exactly no, right that right. it would be so much more effective if they had a piece of legislation yeah. that they were promoting the as the Republican free market I mean, alternative at the same time. The one thing they say yeah. is they say repeal and replace, but they never told us what they want to replace with. I mean, they want their own form of socialized medicine. Who knows what it is? And we didn't know. But uh, in terms of where we are, Ted Cruz is still the best. He is still the best out there, despite that. And but you know, Yaron always brings up these insights, these things that uh, very, very rare. I mean, you rarely hear them from other people, especially the uh, talk, the, the discussion on Syria. You don't hear those kind of that kind of com com complexity and the kind of insight that he has in terms of being uh, in Israeli military and you know, knowing that they had chemical weapons for 30 years. You know, and uh, they haven't let them out yet. They haven't sold them out. To yeah, so that whole system. argument that the whole thing yeah. is that they're going to give them away That's is, too is specious. Yeah, it's yeah, specious, exactly. really. It's so, out there. Yeah. So always interesting, always good. I mean, my thing with, with your own in terms of terminology, you know, I, I disagree in terms of, I always use the word Islam. I use I always say that Islam by nature is, is totalitarian. There's no such thing as quote-unquote totalitarian Islam. Outside of that, he's excellent in terms of, you know, what we have to do. Also, so, someday you and your honor have to have that debate. I mean, we've had it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've had it over the years. I mean, first time I met him, I brought it up. Uh, but he he's great, and he's always something just very, very um but he, but, he, but he's right. His foreign policy recommendations is something that you don't hear no. on Fox. Ever. And, and, Ever. And he said at Steamboat, he said they don't invite him on Fox because of how extreme and, he is with respect to his recommendations. The the insight that he has into knowing the mentality of the enemy, and I know this also, yeah. you scare them, they cower. They are cowards. They are. I mean, in general, all those thugs, all those dictators, all those terrorists, they're, they're gutless when it comes down to it, when you show any spine. Uh, and I, I love when you said, put the fear of Allah into them. That's what I've been, that, that's what Pigman does. I mean, you know, scare the hell out of them. Now, here, here we have, we have a caller, and I am reticent to take callers and put guests on the spot with callers because over here at Blog Talk Radio, I do not have a call screener. Right. So I'm sorry to this person who's been on hold and I'm about to pick it up for, and I haven't answered it for so long. Um, I'm willing to myself take a chance and see who it is, but I, I don't do that. Um, can you turn down your radio? I'm just taking you off mute right now and tell me who you are. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, Hi, who's this? Okay. Um, yeah, sorry. This is uh, James L. again. Um, I, I I'm on my phone, so I wasn't able to give my question to your on in the chat box. Oh, I'm so sorry um, about that. Yeah, but I just because I don't have a call screener here on Blog Talk, and I don't want to put guests like your own on the spot yeah. if I get a caller who is rude, which sometimes happens. 
I really don't like to take calls during the interview, so I'm sorry about that. Um, oh yeah, I definitely understand. Do you do you have a do you have a comment uh, that you wanted to make in reaction to something that he said? Oh um, yeah, well I was just going to ask my question. Maybe you can give your opinion on it. Is basically. Uh, I hear from Iran and some other objectivists that they think that Obama is um Wait, you're you're bra- you're breaking up. Okay, you're breaking up. You said uh, I think Obama is what? Hello? No, I think I think I think you're fr- you're bra- Oh gosh, now we lost him. We lost him entirely. So hopefully he'll call back and we'll get a better connection. We'll get his question. That would be great. Uh, people in the chat room, thank you for tuning in. People are saying thanks, great work on the interview. Your own interviews himself, ba- yeah. basically, and I kind of steer thing, him. So he's he's excellent. Just go follow him. He, in terms of, I mean, I I tend to go that route where you know it, it ends up being pro-Islamic. I mean, his foreign policy does have that kind of. And uh, when your own says, you know, well, uh, his his fundamental thing is, yeah, he's anti-American. That's absolutely true. Yeah. And when you know uh, when Leonard coined him as an egalitarian, as somewhat of an egalitarian nihilist, he naturally goes and is attracted to destructive ideologies like, just, like Islam, I like just, communism. I just can't believe that we're in a stage where we're talking <laughs> about an anti-American a president. Fundamentally anti-American president. This is his. He despised the country, hates it, is working against it. And he happens to be attracted to those ideologies that also happen to be against us. So in, in that sense, he's their tool, and they, he uses them as a tool back and forth. Yeah. I mean, they're all uh, – he's a, a one-worlder. You know, there's the world, and then there's America, and he's on the old side. You know, there's the, these stories, some of the stories that I link to over here in the program notes section at DontLetItGo.com are stories that you just – don't believe. No. So, for example, here we have the U.S. jobs report paints sluggish picture of hiring, and they talk about what the stats are. And if if you, I've got a Wall Street Journal article here that I'm looking at, and it was just uh, updated today, and it says employers added 169,000 jobs in August, and all this stuff. Uh, two things: first of all, people are leaving the workforce in record numbers as well. So. We have a 35-year low right now of 63.2% of the population in the workforce. So I think insofar as you say, okay, well, percentages on employment, those are only people who are seeking employment and not able to get, right? That's what that reflects. Here we're talking about some of those numbers being only because some people have left the workforce entirely and have given up looking for work. So that's pretty crazy. Uh, the other thing is... Why take any of these job statistics seriously when you see that time after time they have revised the stats later and revised them down, revised the number of jobs down? And Yaron mentioned the the number of 75,000 jobs revised by 75,000 jobs. That is a huge percentage of what they're talking about, the monthly number of jobs added, because here they're talking about 169,000. If you take 75,000 out of something like that, that is crazy. So I, I, I don't even, yeah, it says right here, the Labor Department revised down the combined tally for job gains in June and July by 74,000. So the revised July gain is 104,000, down from an initial estimate of 162,000. That's 58,000. 58,000 is a huge percentage of 162,000. So why even take these 
figures yeah. on at face value at all when they're being constantly revised down later. That's the, only, it, that's the only reference point they have. That's the only thing that they can count on. I mean, but but we're being we're being yes, we're being lied to. We're being course. lied to month well, after it's month. Obama. Is he, you know where where would he be without lies? He'd be in Chicago peddling some uh, stuff. Yeah, State Defiance in the chat room says it exactly right. He says you don't hear the revisions on the news, yeah. and that is the right thing. And also, State Defiance says something that he's for turd limits, and I am also definitely for turd limits. Turd limits because <laughs> <laughs> they're full of crap. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't mean that it's the right thing that you wouldn't hear the revisions on. We should hear the revisions on the news. We should hear the commentators on the news up yeah. in arms because they continually, month after month, revise them down but by such huge percentages. On board. I mean, like like Chris Matthews said, basically, they have to go get behind Obama, even if it's bad, even if it's terrible. I mean, this is this is what this is where they are now. They got they got a lousy lousy guy that they got to get behind yeah. and try to prop him up. It's like it's like you know you know when the uh, the left complained that we prop up dictators in the Middle East, well they're trying to prop up a would be dictator here. You know. That's what they're doing. Yeah. It's, de it's definitely here. So then the other just completely strange thing that you you what what is that universe that is the anti of what we have now that you call in comic book world the bizarre world bizarro yeah. world right I believe that uh, this, yeah, this is the bizarre president or bizarre US he president. is he is I mean to talk about a U.S. president anti-American to talk about these job statistics and the effect of the job statistics I do feel like I'm in bizarro world so they they keep changing the headline on this story at the Wall Street Journal that I linked to on my blog. Now it's the headline reads labor recovery leaves more workers behind and then it says solid hiring comes in lower paying sectors participation rate at lowest levels since 1978. That's what the headline is now. Earlier the headline said that the stock markets were rebounding, right? Oh wait, am I on the wrong story? I'm I'm pontificating. Yeah. Um no no no. See, I went to the wrong thing. I'm pontificating on the wrong headline. Yay, Amy. Um Yay. what I want to see is stocks bounce back after soft jobs report. Now they've revised it a little. Stocks inch up after jobs data. And then it says focus shifts back to Fed stimulus after soft jobs report. It is so bizarre to say we have a soft jobs report that the job market is not good, the job news is not good, and then you see stock market coming back. And the bizarro thing that comes in is that the people say, oh, the jobs recovery is not that good, therefore the Fed is not going to remove its stimulus anytime soon. Therefore, we can all breathe a sigh of relief and keep investing in the stock market. Oh, that, to me, is so counterintuitive and backwards, as my mm -hmm. mom might have said. My mom had a lot of good stuff. She'd call things revulsifying, mm -hmm. disgustipating, and backwards. And this is backwards. What in the world, I mean, would you have where you say the jobs report is bad, therefore we rejoice and we keep plowing money into the stock market and the stock market rebounds? Would you expect to see those two things side by side in no. one day's news? No. No. And and it's this all it's it's all because they're anticipating that the Fed is going to keep buying, buying, buying. Now, they have rejiggered this story to the extent that they haven't talked about in here the uh continuing treasury note. Uh you know the the buying of bonds, the buying of bonds. So they earlier in the day, this story that I linked to that now says stocks inch up after jobs data. Earlier in the day, 
they talked about the stimulus and the rate of stimulus, which is 80-some-odd billion per month that the Fed has been plowing into the economy and that everyone is breathing a sigh of relief because they think the Fed's going to continue to pump all this into the economy. Now I don't see this in this revised version of the Wall Street Journal. Now, verify, Bosch, that I'm not staring at the wrong story. Stocks and jump after jobs Stocks data. Stocks and jump after jobs data, yeah. that the focus is shifting back to the Fed <laughs> stimulus. But in the story, are they telling you about the amount of the Fed stimulus here? Do you see it anywhere in this story? No. 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 I mean, no. It's a short piece also. Yeah. So they cut out the actual figures of the billions that's being pumped in terms of Fed stimulus. So I think it'd be good to bring back that, uh, what is it, the Potemkin economy cartoon right. that we have. Pumping. Yeah. Where hey, Bernanke is. Yeah, Penny's just pumping and pumping into the economy. That's what they're doing right now. Yep. And when does this collapse? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, Ed in the chat room says the Fed is artificially blowing up a stock bubble. Yeah, it seems that that's yeah. what they're doing. They say that stocks are right. up 14 yep. percent over as the year. That's the answer. As if that's the actual um, healthy economy. Yeah, and you, you would not expect stocks to go up 14 percent in an economy in which job growth is 0.5 percent over several years, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, now they're talking about the Dow to gold ratio and things in the chat room, things that end up going beyond me. Making predictions about gold prices way beyond me. You definitely need to talk to, to Peter Schiff. But what I do know is that it is, to me, so insane to say jobs report is bad, stocks will go up. Oh, why are the stocks going up? Oh, it's only because the government is distorting our economy and putting us in this bizarro economy, as you might call it. Uh, bond bubble as well and state defiance says probably a negative GDP. So I think between talking about Syria, which is something that we're likely going to do, yeah. I didn't get to it, but Robert NYC in the chat room predicted earlier that Obama is going to put off actually the engagement itself until 9-11 because that. he wants to completely obliterate I the one-year anniversary yes. of, of Benghazi. For the, for the last two years, yeah. he has attempted to try to redefine 9-11, if you recall. He wants to make it a day of service, literally has tried to push that. And that didn't work, clearly. People were like, what the hell are you talking about? And now with Benghazi, with his with the worst of his scandals, he allowed Americans to, to, to be butchered. He allowed it to happen. He could have stopped it. He allowed it to happen. And, of course, 9-11, it all makes him look bad. So, therefore, he's going to try to do something to offset that, which is go and be a commander-in-chief of some sort and try to do something. And what, to what end? This, that might be the end. I mean, who knows exactly what it is, but that sounds, yeah, that sounds like you know, the, the, that could be the case. The, the picture that came in my mind, and, again, we we spoke with Yaron Brook last hour about Syria, and part of the discussion was about who are these rebels. Right. And he mentioned a significant influential minority. He thought it was probably a minority, but it was probably the well, contingent with the most influence, yes. which is the Al-Qaeda contingent. We're talking the, the jihadists, yes. right? So if we come in on the side of the rebels, in effect you can see us as coming in on the side of Al-Qaeda. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. So, so here we are. It will We're be, making it easier for I mean, Al-Qaeda to think take about over. This, but think about this. If... if Robert NYC is right. You know, we can start a betting pool and we can make right. a whole pile of money, right? You know, betting well, that's, about that's when the award's going to start, right? But, but just think of this one picture, and maybe we have a cartoon brewing here, mm -hmm. Bosh. Twelve years after 9-11, 9-11, 2001, we are attacked 
by Al-Qaeda. Right. 9-11-2013, we are fighting on the side of Al-Qaeda. Yes. yes. As simple as disgusting as that. That's, yeah. I mean, that's a horrible picture. This is, I mean, just... So it's, so it's, it's not about, you know, caring about... I mean, Robert N. Weinstein Chavez, you know, he cares, cares more about Syrians in Syria than Americans in Benghazi, and that is true, that is true. I'd say but true. to me, the symbolic no. statement of coming in on the side of effectively Al-Qaeda the fact that, uh, that 12 those, years after 9-11 when Al-Qaeda that, attacked us, that is, exactly. I mean, that, this and, is what we're both defining. And also the reality that those who flew planes to our building is killing thousands of Americans are still active. They're still intact. They're still alive. They're still trying to kill us. That's a horrific fact also. Yeah. You know, this is unbelievable. A dozen years after. And on top of that, to get on their side. I mean, I don't know. Almost worried about what, what, you know. Anyway, about what I might say. Yeah, we can we can uh, hold that. Do you want to go ahead and take this call? Let's grab a call here. Hi, who's this? Hey, this is Ed. How are you doing? Hi, Ed. Ed. How are you? I uh, I wanted to uh, throw out a, a potentially opposite uh, view to Robert. Um, not that I don't think Robert has a good idea. But one can never tell with this crazy guy what he's really doing. Um, I, I think that he he really got hammered uh, leading up to the start the the planned start of the strike last week by the right wing media. You know, playing all of those clips from his campaigns about how it's unconstitutional to go and comparing him to you know no United Nations resolutions and no Congress and no uh, Britain and no other allies and. It's just being hammered and hammered and hammered. And then, you know, Kerry came out with this forceful statement against Syria, really forceful for Kerry, who's, you know, a windbag trader. But other than that, he's, you know, he's right. a very forceful statement. And then the next day, Obama says, eh, well, I'll ask Congress. And the only thing I can think of is that the the – hammering of him got to him and he said maybe i better not do this on my own maybe i maybe i ought to get the republicans in with me and the good news is if the republicans are in this with me by voting for the uh strikes on syria then they bear some of the responsibility oh yeah yeah he can't be blamed as much yeah yeah but the best part would be if the republicans rejected his going into syria which which could be the case resolution which could and be the then, case. Which could be, and then every child who dies in Syria yeah. from then to the next election is the fault of the Republicans. But let me say one All thing. All of those Syrian children who died, it's, it's John Boehner and the Republicans. But l- let me say one thing to that, though, Ed. Uh, I don't think the American people would buy it. We don't want to go there. I think they would, they would smell a rat, finally, about Obama and say, you know what, this guy's really going to the point where we d- we're sure as hell they don't want to go there. Eighty percent of us don't want to go there. So he tries to pull that. It might work with a small percentage of the leftists in his country, but with the majority of Americans, I don't, I don't, I don't think it'll work. So, Ed, you, you actually think that his blustering about, well, if the Republicans vote no, I might still go, you think he won't do it? I, I, I don't know. I don't, think he, uh, I don't think he has it in him. I mean, if he really had it in him, he would have done it six months ago, right? Um, That's possible. It's, it's very weird. I mean, I live in the Beltway region. I get the local news and it's a it's a different bubble here um there is this there is this thought that and it's it's sort of a conventional bipartisan 
foreign policy consensus that the purpose of the American armed forces are to right wrongs across the globe. And you know, it's the neocons on the right and yeah. it's the it's the, you know, standard statists on the left. And one of the things they really don't like is chemical uh is chemical weapons. And uh you you can see it in the run up to the war in or, Iraq. I mean, the Democrats as well as the Republicans were horrified at at uh, Saddam Hussein's use of chemical weapons. They really don't like it and it's like 100 years old from World War 1, all the disasters and they they just don't like it, and they think if anybody uses chemical weapons, we're going to really smack them down. And, you know, when you think about it, chemical weapons are, are, are nasty, but they're not really nasty. But there is kind of a, there is, you know, biological weapons. I mean, if somebody said they were developing biological weapons, um, you know, smallpox or, or something like that, I mean, what we would—that would be a threat because it could kill, you know. Half oh yeah, the and then and then you just you just we would have to go in and kill every single one of them, just wipe them off the face of the earth, um, because we couldn't possibly allow biological weapons to exist. Yeah, it's I mean, and that and, and that and that goes that goes back to Yaron's point about if you could point to actual evidence that the threat would redound to us which in the case of your yeah. biological weapon scenario, it, it definitely would. So I think, yeah, that you know, bring it back to, to that standard for sure. That as the reason. Yeah, State yeah. But so, I think in their minds of the foreign policy consensus, chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons are all kind of in the same boat and all kind of uh, verboten. And the truth of the matter is, is though chemical weapons are extremely nasty, um, they are not a particular threat uh to the West, you know, they could be smuggled in and set off on a subway. That would be very bad, um, and that would kill hundreds of people. And that would be that would be awful. But they they aren't a sort of existential threat like biological weapons or nuclear weapons are. They're just really nasty. Right, right. So your prediction: he might not even do it, at least, and so maybe he's going to. I think he's going to. He, honestly, I think he's going to honor what Congress does. And then, and then, he's, and then he's going to blame Republicans. He's going to try to blame Republicans. That's right. If Congress says no, if Congress says go, he's going to go, and there's going to something's going to happen. It's not going to be ineffectual. I can't imagine him actually taking effectual action. Um, and then, but at least he'll have the Republicans roped in with him in this endeavor. And if the Congress says no, he's it's perfect because okay, I'm going to honor the will of Congress and. Every dead baby in Syria is now the fall of the Republicans. Okay. Could have saved that dead baby, but the Republicans wouldn't let me. Okay. Well, thanks for calling in with your prediction, so Ed. Oh, sorry, I cut him off a little bit too soon. Thanks for giving us your prediction, and I guess we'll get to see next week who's right, at least in terms of Robert's prediction of the strike happening on 9-11. Uh, you know, in the news before, when I was initially reading about some of the, the lead-up to Syria, I recall Obama saying that he wanted to have it be something really quick, like a three-day strike right. that was going to be done before he even went to this summit well, that and was him supposedly all, all the, all the gave Putin the death stare or because whatever again, he did. the Obama right? administration, they're a collective, and they're like, we got to get a 9-11 Benghazi off. I mean, this is possible. It's very possible. There's so many reasons, but keep Syria on top of the news. You know, during this time when people are, are commemorating the worst attack ever that we, that that we faced, and that makes Obama look bad, and also his worst uh, scandal, I think, at least personally, where he decided not to save Americans. Um, 
um, I don't know. I think I think it's very possible. That's all. We'll we'll find out next week for sure. And what is pathetic is, like I said, if if that symbol is actually put out there, we come in effectively on the side of Al Qaeda twelve years after nine eleven two thousand one when we were attacked by Al Qaeda. Also, that this, would be disgusting. Also, a media whore in chief wants to keep something he's involved with on top of the news every single day. He he loves it. You know, he feeds off of it. Yeah, he, he wants he wants to be in control of and drive the news. Absolutely no direct no his people directed. Imagine what they do with the New York Times, ABC and all the other ones. Give them talking points every single morning, every single day. Of course they do. Are you ready, Bosch? Yeah. And course. now for something completely different. Let's go. And this kind of brings up some themes of what Yaron Brook talked about at Steamboat Springs. Again, I recommend going to Yaron Brook's page on Facebook, scrolling down until you see the big frame where he has his talk at Steamboat and watching that. Uh, this article that I linked to on my blog at DontLetItGo.com reminds me of something that Yaron talked about there. The article is from Salon. You love Salon, right? Well, right, Bosch? I think they're in competition with MSC, MSNBC to be the most irrational, you know, just ludic- ludicrous um, news source. The article is called The Ted Cruz Effect, How One Man Destabilized the Government. Now, and they could have said the Obama effect, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, imagine Obama has changed the way that presidents govern, yeah. as far as I can tell. And he wants to change but the relationship between Americans and, and their government yeah. through now, Obamacare. Now, this was uh, published on September 2nd over at Salon. You can get the link, like I said, at the program notes. Just go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com. I have links to all the stories we're talking about on today's show. Subtitle here is, Certain Norms have held together America's legislative governance for nearly a century. Think about the timing of that. That's Nearly a century, which is a century was when we started to go really hardcore downhill. Oh yeah, you know, with yeah. our rights, with I mean, our freedoms. Yeah, when, when your own Brooke talks about the fact when, that when we we don't have a free market, he says we haven't had a free That's market right. for a exactly. century. Nineteen thirteen. Exactly. Income years tax. Federal Reserve. And this guy's afraid right. that this one man will overthrow that entire thing, and he got, you know, he's got to get it. He's this evil. Well, and it's and it's not just that though, right? So you know, it's not just. Oh, that he poses a threat to big government, to statism, to totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. He's talking about it in terms of politics and, and dynamics within the, the Republican Party. So he talks about these norms that have held together America's legislative governance, da da da. I mean, that's just an appeal to authority. <laughs> exactly. like, this is this is how we've always also, done it. How dare you do it any other way? America has had turned left, you know, for the last hundred years, and you know that's bad. If this guy, if this guy wants to flip that, right, right. But what what they're talking about here is they're talking more about extremism in the Republican Party, mm-hmm. and what this salon writer is perceiving which I think he's perceiving incorrectly, because I think that Ted Cruz has not yet had the effect right. that this salon writer is attributing They're, to him. Right? Again, again, they want to get ahead of things. Right, like, right, like right. the woman who wrote the one thing about the uh, the school, she's afraid of something. This guy's afraid of something here. Right. She's afraid this guy might start something. Right, and right. Put him out now. And, and, and what he seems to be afraid of is that he thinks that Ted Cruz is introducing to the Republican Party an, ex- an extreme point of view Principles. that yeah that, that that he has he's in effect the leader of a substantial influential extreme faction in let, the Republican let, Party. Let me say one thing also, please. Yeah. Okay, the last incredibly popular president, the one who had landslides. No, but who? Where's the last landslide we know about? Reagan, Ronald Reagan. He appealed to Americans. Ted Cruz appeals to 
Americans, not anti-Americans, not leftists, to Americans, and they right. know his potential, right. and that's why they want to really cut him down now. But it's not that extreme. It's, that's BS. He appeals to <laughs> modern Americans, who you know, Americans just want to work, and they don't, they're not even interested in politics too much. But they want to make a good living. They want to live in a freer country. He appeals to them. He, he appeals also to people who are completely committed to politics, whether they're in politics or not. So this is again, they're terrified of what he might represent of what he is probably representing, at least outside of power. I mean, he has some power now, but nowhere near as much as they're afraid that he might have. And they see him as a guy who really will be in that in that same Reagan uh, ilk. Right. You know, it's pro-American, and, yeah. uh, principled, with a spine. Well, and, and what does pro-American mean? And so, you know, this this goes back to Obama being anti-American. Why? Because Obama is anti-individual rights. Yep. This goes back to something that Jerome Brook is talking about in speeches time and time and time again. America is founded on a principle. The thing that makes us American is not a certain race of people mm-hmm. or history of people. or this. It's a principle. It's an idea, right? It's, our, our country was the first to be founded on an idea, and it is that government, its purpose is to protect individual rights. And it's because... It's because Jerome Brook, I mean, excuse me, not Jerome Brook, it's because Barack Obama is against that principle. Barack Obama hates that principle and everything that it stands well, for. He despises he the idea that that's it. government's job. He knows he can't that, do that. That but. he's anti-American. It's not like he hates us. Right. He's a nice exactly guy. Right. He likes us personally, whatever. Right. He's anti-American not because he hates us right. or he, what, he wishes bad for the us. Ideas, he yeah. is anti-American in his very thinking. Yeah. Absolutely right. That, Fundamentally. That, that is how he's anti- – so that's how we're talking about him, being fundamentally Every, anti-American. He undercuts everything that makes America America. That's his job, yeah. in, in his mind. So apparently there is something with which Cruz, Ted Cruz, is aligned called the Senate Conservatives Fund, SCF. And that particular fund has been supporting the candidacy of people who are actually running against incumbents who are not for these principles. Now, yeah. again, you know, again, Cruz is mixed because he pushes some of the social issues, and I'd love to have that discussion in a, you know, with him. In a very minor but, way, i got to say. You know what? In a very it, minor way, I have to say. Yeah. I think he does it as a token sometimes. I mean, he, does, he actually believes those things. Keep in mind as all, well. All of that remains to be seen. I, I still have a question mark in my mind to see what look, he would do when he gets power, well, if he gets power. No matter how much I, I, I like Ted Cruz, I know he's a politician in the end. I know that. Believe me. And even if he gets in, it's still you've got to put his feet to the fire every time. But there's nobody. There's Ted Cruz, and then there's that, and that's it, really, right, right now. Right. I mean, it really is the case. But so what the salon writer is doing is saying that Ted Cruz is the leader of this extremist movement within the Republican Party, and in effect, he's 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 attributing to Cruz and this faction something that Yaron proposed at the Steamboat Talk. Yaron said. You know, whether it's a separate party or whether it's an extreme faction within the GOP, that we need to have a bunch of politicians who stand on the principle of individual rights, that they are going to be consistent in their defense. And they're going to they're going to say, for instance, that we want a complete free market in health care, that our goal is to even get rid of Medicare and all the other, you know, prior interventions in the healthcare industry, that we are you know, against regulation in the economy of any kind, that, you know, we're against the minimum wage. All of these very principled stands need to be taken by either people in this new party, if it's necessary, or preferably 
people within a wing of the Republican Party. And he, and he said, look, if this happens, it might result in Republicans losing elections for a while. We might get only Democrats. Yep. But, said your own, it would be worth it because at least we would have hope of returning to a state in which America actually stood for right. what it originally right. stood for. And this, you know, this guy, the fear also that he uh, he doesn't want the Republicans to have their quote unquote Obama, and it, they're anti-Obama. You know, what I mean? they, he doesn't want they don't want a popular, appealing guy on their side, on on their side. Because as far as they're concerned, Obama is the best thing that they could possibly have. As far as they're concerned, I mean, however disgusting he is to us, to them, that's their hero, that's their guy. I mean, that's their ideal candidate, and he he came through. And they don't want the right to have that because he appeals. He, you know, he appeals to a lot of people, not just conservatives, not just Republicans. He appeals to Americans. I don't, you know, I don't care where, where they come from. Rational Democrats, if there are, if there are any left, semi-rational liberals. He he does appeal to them. Well, and Cruz is young enough. Suppose it's true that if Cruz keeps pushing a principled line, if he attracts a small faction of principled politicians behind him and you have this wing of the Republican Party that's actually going to reboot right. the party as, as a friend of ours wants to, to suggest. If that happens, you, Cruz is young enough that he could hang on through the years that the Democrats might win because of this right. and then eventually people right. will elect somebody better. And, and but right, right, right now there's no difference between Republicans no, and Democrats. Zero. None. you got Democrats and Democrats. I mean, that's it. But one thing also about that... Um, Cruz, he's one man, right? And when you say that he might attract people, he might, you know, make get better people. That is something that Reagan really didn't have. It, it was Reagan, and that's it. He, his vice president was a hack, Bush. The Republicans stunk. They didn't allow him to do anything that he wanted to do. Uh, he wanted to basically end the uh, Department of Education. The Republicans wanted to hold on to it. They're yeah. the ones. And oh, if yeah. they were in with them, they could have actually uh, abolished it. They didn't do it. And if Cruz gets a, a Rand Paul, a Mike Lee, others like him, because there was, there was not the case back then. It was only Reagan, period. He was like a, an anomaly, like, what the who the hell is this guy? And whereas today you have a few guys, and that's important as hell. And I think Cruz is the leader of that of that, of that that group. He's the most principled to me. He's the smartest also, and the most appealing. I mean, he is. He, he comes off as a naturally uh, pro-American, uh, whereas Rand Paul, at times, I think he has to, I think he has to say certain things he knows in order to appeal to certain groups, his followers, people, and other groups, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I mean, I, I really don't sometimes with him. I like him, but man, he is so dead wrong in some issues that it's just it's it's tough to believe that he actually is the consistent good guy that people like to believe he is. You know, you know what you're saying right now leads you back towards Levin, yeah. and and here's why. You are you marvel at the fact that a Ronald Reagan could be elected, yeah. and why is it? It's because the people who are electing a president in an election are so much better than the politicians oh, in man. Washington. Yeah. And it's, you know, Levin thinks that maybe even the state legislatures or some better. conglomeration of somebody they that's going to represent states would be better than the politicians we have in Washington right now, that they're the only hope and effect that we have. Yep. Yep, and yeah. you know what? They uh, they lead the Democrats in terms of they dominate those uh, legislate they dominate they dominate those areas across country. Uh, uh, Republicans do more dominate so, the legislature more so okay. than Democrats. They do. I don't know about how, how much, but they do thirty to twenty. I don't know. What it I, is. I do think your own had a good point though. We have term limits in California right. in our state legislature, and it hasn't done us much I mean, good look, at all. All these, you know what, Levin, all these amendments that that, that he's made, right? I hear a lot of pushback. People say, well, 
Those aren't good memos. These are the conversations here because of Levin. He started this book. He wrote it for the last year and a half. He's been talking about it. It's important that someone initiates this. And then you can say, well, maybe this one could be changed. Fine. And I right. think he's open to that. Then we can make them all better and add something and change something. Fine. The conversation was begun by one individual. And that's that's the thing. There is there is one Mark Levin. There's one Ted Cruz. And then you have a few guys maybe being inspired by them, let's say. And then we can start the ball rolling, slowly but surely. And then objectivists do their job in the culture. And who knows? I mean, who knows? I mean, where where you can go with that? And it happens to be that all these guys, Levin uh, has called Rand Brilliant, uh, has read a work on his on the air. Uh, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Mike Lee are all fans of Ayn Rand. That is as good as these guys are. Rand has made them better. Yes, no absolutely. doubt. No absolutely. doubly. Yeah, I, I think sharper, uh, more uh, you know, uh, able to see what's important and stick to it. That's what Rand does. Yeah, the, for, uh, for for fans at least, not objectivists. I, I do. I definitely agree with your own though that that someone like Cruz could go further than he does, but he oh, yeah. he he's doing an excellent yeah, job. Yeah, he's a he's a politician. He's a conservative. He will have certain things that we will disagree with. And I, I just I just wish that guy at Salon was right that Cruz had already <laughs> right. had that effect. That, Again, they're that he's attributing to him. You know what? <laughs> they are scared. You know what? Let's uh let's do a big switch again. And let's talk a little bit about something that's right up your alley, Bosch. Yeah. As you guys know, Bosch Faustin is a cartoonist, and he is a consumer of comics as well. Oh, yeah. So he's been following a lot of the storylines and, and everything for years. There's a story that's been on Dredge for the past couple days, hmm. and so I figure they're just you know serving it up to you on a silver platter, right, basically, right. Bosch. It is that Batwoman co-authors, the co-authors of the Batwoman series, have left the series. They're no longer going to write for it because, they say, DC, DC Comics prohibited having a lesbian marriage between Batwoman and yeah. her fiancé. Yeah. I I haven't read the comic. Uh, they push the idea that she's lesbian, she's gay as a first thing, and that just turns me off. Whenever someone tries to shove down my throat the reason why they do the comic, uh, you know, it, it might be a good story, I don't know, but that's the, that's the only thing I've ever heard about this comic, that she's gay. Okay. And then she's in a relationship with a, a woman, Maggie Sawyer. I think uh, I don't even know the name of the new Batwoman, but she they're 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 in a uh, a loving relationship, and uh, she's an open you know homosexual character in uh, uh, I guess a top selling comic. It's, it's in a Batman universe, and the writers at a certain point I guess felt it was time for her to get married, and DC I, I guess said uh, not really, and let's just hold it off. We don't like. We actually they uh, they uh, decoupled they demarried uh, uh, Clark and Lois. They said they don't want the characters to be really associated with any particular. And they might might be in a relationship, but nothing commit you know nothing seriously committed. Maybe that's the reason. Maybe they're just afraid of the backlash. Who knows? But the yeah, fact that I this mean, character this, that, that, is that, that, gay. That's what they say, right? No, but this character the is gay. Yeah, the yeah. DC was completely on board with that. They're like, fine. That's and they pushed it. Actually, that was the main reason why they, why they pushed the series. They they actually turned a non-gay character gay, Green Lantern. Which is weird. Create your own character, create a new character, and do anything you want with with that character. And that's what these guys should do. They should they should do that now. Actually, go out there and self publish their own character and marry them off and do whatever they want. They have the right to do that. Not with characters who they don't own. They don't own this character, and they're leaving in a huff because they're trying to accuse DC of being, uh, I guess, homophobic. When DC was on board with them for at least the last I don't know how many years yeah. uh, with this comic. Now apparently, you know, they talk about. And I'm going back to the story. I have a link to the story at don'tletitgo.com in the program notes. 
they they say at the beginning here in a blog post late Wednesday these co-authors wrote that they'd be exiting the comment blah blah. When you click on the link to the supposed yeah, blog post, yeah. it says service unavailable. Myself, right. Service unavailable. So they uh, maybe took down that blog post. Maybe. And later in the article, they talk about basically the authors sort of admitting that. DC Comic isn't anti-gay marriage. Yes. It's just that they don't marry off any of their superheroes. Right. And that is a noteworthy <laughs> point. And yeah. uh, but I think they, I think they got all huffy and puffy and say, you know what, DC, we're done here. And they lost the opportunity to continue this series that they love doing with a gay character that they, that they wanted to write because they couldn't get the ultimate thing that they felt the culture is now ready for. Uh, again, they should have continued this series. And later on, have their own character and marry that person off. Or they could have Batwoman officiate a gay marriage between her <laughs> friends or something. I mean, something. come on. Have um, a gay marriage in the comic. Yeah, you know, without, yeah. You know, it's something, no, but again, they don't own this character. This idea that I can go into DC and say, you know what? I'm going to make uh, Bruce Wayne an, uh, an, an objectivist. And that's that, DC. They're like, uh, no. No, <laughs> you're like, hired yeah, to write Bruce whoa, Wayne. Whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. I yeah. think that's the way he ought to go. He should be the full-on objectivist. Yeah, but like, why the hell would I even pretend that I could do that? I couldn't do that. And these guys, I think, wanted to get they they had everything they wanted, and then you know we want some more. And DC said, "Look, guys." Enough. Answer Ed's question here. He says uh, Lois and yeah. Clark are no longer married. Yeah, because they they rebooted the the uh, the uh, DC universe, and they they just basically knocked the last twenty thirty years of the last reboot into the garbage can. And started with something new, and this is what they do every so often to make them "quote unquote" relevant, to make them something. Superman has a a pretty okay. I like the fact that they got rid of shorts. That's cool. I mean, Pigman doesn't wear shorts. He has a belt and he has boots and gloves, and that's that's what he is. Superman doesn't have shorts, but he has this really strange, weird turtleneck with a V in front. It's so cheesy. It is so 2013. <laughs> Tell us what you really think. Uh, about. But okay, so let, let's go back to the, the yeah. more political point. And here's, I think, you know this kind of standard objectivist analysis of something like this, which you and I yeah. will definitely agree about, which would be that uh, may, maybe not all of it is standard objectivist analysis. I have no problem with gay marriage. I think gay marriage is fine. Yeah. We may not want to see gays or gay marriage so prominently pushed yeah. in artistic works, but whatever. Uh, what, what we do know for sure is that if you're hired to write a particular character and the company tells you the character has certain attributes that your job is to work within those attributes and if they you know if the company tells you this character is not going to be married no. gay or otherwise then you don't marry them you know no. so so you're you're hired to do a job somebody owns a character therefore that's what you agree to do it's not like you're violating your principles now you could say if the character's a bad person or something whatever um, that that's another thing. But here here's a question for you, Bosch, mm-hmm. and I'm going to throw you this one. I, I threw I threw your own Brooke the curveball <laughs> about personal values last uh, <laughs> last hour, and I feel bad, you know, just getting him on the spot about that. But you don't feel bad doing it, do, do but it to me. I, I figure just you okay. know the more the merrier, right? And here it is. Do you think that it weakens a superhero if you portray them as being married? I mean, what what do you think of this policy of well, not having them married? Pigman's married, and yeah. he has children, and that's it. I mean, that's just that's he's a family man. He's fighting for his values, his family, his country, his you know his his values, and uh, that's fine. Uh, but Superman, 
Spider-Man. Spider-Man is a young man. They always like having the drama of him getting into bad relationships and getting out of them and getting a new one, new hope, and then cutting him, you know, put, pulling the rug under his feet. It's, to them, it's just more dramatic, period. And that's it. And I don't have the problem of having Pigman for decades and decades and decades and decades. They do. Spider-Man is 50 years old now, you know, and he still is 20 years old. So they have to keep him, I guess, younger. And that's the way they do it. Uh, you know, Batman hasn't had a serious relationship. He had, what, Vicky Ville in some, in the 70s something. They put it, they put it in a movie. He hasn't had a, he is an obsessed crime fighter. That's his, <laughs> that's his wife. I mean, you know, fighting crime. That's it. Uh, Superman was, was married for the last, I don't know, 20 years maybe. And they didn't even deal with a divorce or anything. They didn't get messy. They just said, okay, you know what? Let's just wipe out that universe and start a new one. But the one thing with Spider-Man, which they did, with, which, was, which was really terrible. Joe Quesada, the, the, he was the editor-in-chief now. I think he has a, he's a higher position. He wanted Peter Parker to not be married anymore. Just Let's just do it. And let's do it in a way that will be even worse. Because, you know, he said divorce is no-no. So what he does, he makes a deal with the devil to annul his to wipe out his marriage. That's better than divorce. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, mean you know, I mean, that's better than divorce. Yeah. Peter Parker sold out. So, he sold I mean, out the love of his life. And so, so do you think it weakens the heroes though? In, in order to, to in, have sorry, it, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I okay. don't think so personally. Pigman, I think he's stronger for it in a sense where he's not just some guy like the Punisher, soulless, killing bad guys, and doesn't give a damn if he lives or dies. Pigman wants to kill the bad guys. He wants to live a happy life. He wants to, you know, have his have his family and live. I mean, basically live, go back to his family, and live a happy life, and that's it. Um, it doesn't diminish him. It doesn't make him weaker. I think it makes him stronger, personally. But again, uh, Peter Parker. To me, Peter Parker Spider Man is that teenager that Stan Lee and Steve Ditko did in those early issues, in those first thirty issues. That is Spider Man. Everything else has been almost, you know, redundant. Almost redundant. There's been some good stories here and there, but the best ones are reliant on those old ones. So, and marrying Peter Parker might be a little too much for me personally, as as a fan. And I didn't mind them being married, but they were real some cheesy stuff. They had some subtle sex scenes. I, I'm I'm sorry. I mean, they, it is for kids. You don't got to go there. You really don't got to go there. And they and they did go there. If it's an adult comic, that's, that, that's fine. You set the terms. But uh, I don't know. I don't know in terms of diminishing them, possibly. Okay. You know, okay. Maybe I not. Just, just wanted to get your artistic take on that yeah. as somebody who writes uh, superheroes. I mean, I would I would think that if your hero, I mean, if, if they are married, uh, have children, that in a way you see values differently and yeah. you might fight even more yes. for them. Yes, more militant, yes. Yeah. You know, Naturally. So, so it's like people who go into the military and fight on behalf of our country. Right. If they have a family at home exactly. for whom they're fighting and they care about, that are... that might make it even more personal, the fight exactly. more personal exactly. for them. So I, Which I, could, okay, in, in yeah. that sense, I guess you could say, well, okay, yeah, again, Punisher, Soulless guy, he's, he lost his family. They were murdered by, by the mob. He goes out there and kills bad guys. And again, he doesn't care if he lives or dies. There's only so much drama you can have really have in there. Where that's it. It's just, okay, there's nothing more to the guy. He's a one note guy. And when he's written well, cool. But um, other characters, again, uh, they have their values, they have their beliefs, and they have and when they have these concrete personal values, I think it, I guess, does make it greater. Right. There was a, there was a the line in The Dark Knight Rises. Where the guy, remember in the cave where you know yeah. uh, right. Bruce Wayne is imprisoned, yeah. and the guy tells him the problem with you is you don't fear death. Right, exactly. That, right. that you have to have a reason to Absolutely. want to stay alive, right. and you have to actually fear death. That that, that is. 
something that he needed in order to right. get strong enough right. and have the will to get out of that cave or pit or whatever it was. In order to make yeah. sure this never happens to America, to make sure him, he and his family are safe, and also he doesn't go recklessly out there. Yeah. He wants to live. He wants to kill them and live and go back home. And he, he, uh, unlike Batman, he's not going to have an endless 20, 30-year war in Gotham to bring this rat, you know, this, this hellhole into some semblance of uh, health. He wants to k- go there, kill them, and come right back a year, two years, whatever it is. Very, very short window. Doesn't can't imagine himself fighting twenty years. I mean, first of all, he's yeah. he's up there in age. He's yeah, not he's older, right, right, he's, right. He's in his, in his forties, going in his fifties. So, so have I have I brought you around to the view then that it might even be better yeah. for these superheroes to be married? I so guess, but it, it depends on the individual superheroes. I yeah, mean, it yeah. does. And also, you, you say the young one, no, not so much. Yeah, yeah not yeah, so much. Yeah, but you know, yeah. but again, also this thing where you got Superman, he's an alien, he's all powerful, married with a human, he's going to outlive her in very very short period. He's immortal as far as I know. That must be heart-wrenching. I don't know if he... I mean, as far as they know, Lois will always be 30 years old for 50, for 100 years, 200 years. But if you take that serious, that relationship seriously, that has a very, very tiny window. So it depends on the superhero. Absolutely. That's, okay. Absolutely. Now, Batwoman being... Uh, if, if she's yeah. an anal- you know, analogy to, to Batman, she basically has a lot of cool suits and gadgets right. and cars exactly. and That's tanks fine. or whatever it is that she has. So totally fine, yeah. she would probably be... Better yeah. allowed to marry, and she has to actually yeah. stop fighting crime at a certain point. Also, she literally can't do it at, at a certain point, and they can sure. live out her life with her lover, and that's it. Yeah, and she has a reason to stay alive in order to do that. So, I'll, I'll, I'll come Depends out against the, it, not because again, it's gay marriage, again, but because it's marriage. It's the individual hero, uh, Pigman. This is his life. This sure. is, you know, and again, he he came way after most superheroes are they're teenagers or they're in their twenties. He came after his forties. Nine Eleven hit in his forties. Big difference. The, the context is there. He, he already has an established family. Right. So, you know, the, and now, you know, again, he has a little more reason, personal reason, to go out there and wipe out this enemy. Let's move on to our next whoa, cultural whoa, whoa, whoa. snapshot. Pigman, I, was, uh, I, I guess I'll talk about Pigman. <laughs> so, listen, he wears pigskin leather. He's no, 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 no. We're going on oh. to Lego. Oh. Lego. Okay, good. So this is semi-comic souls because it has to do with uh, some superheroes as well. Exactly. Got, yeah. we're, we're into uh, some more superheroes. I've got the link at my blog. Go to don'tletitgo.com to the program notes, and you can see the link to this story. The headline from the Hollywood Spectator is Lego Heroes Take on Lord Business. I put Lord Business in quotes in the new trailer. Lord Business is the villain. There's a Lego movie that's coming out next year. There is a teaser trailer, and you can find that teaser trailer and watch it at the link. I thought it was kind of fun, actually. Yeah, so the, it, it's a Lego movie, and it's supposed to have all of the great superheroes, but yeah. they're all Lego versions of the great they're superheroes, cute, yeah. which makes them look cute and yeah. non-intimidating at all. You know, they have this thing about you know the greatest heroes have assembled huh. ever, and then you see this little Lego guy. Huh. It's, I mean, it's really fun. Yeah. But here's the thing: yeah. the, the the villain, and the villain is spoken about by some wizard-looking guy whose voice is uh, Morgan Freeman, is that okay, right? Okay, yes, I think you're right. I, I think and that's Will right. Will Ferrell does a voice to Lord Business. Yeah, so, so the, the, the villain is the evil Lord Business. And so the story here says, I'm sure we'll have lots of clips of Bill O'Reilly screaming about yeah. the whole movie as a communist plot, blah, 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 blah. But here's the thing. I mean, I think there's two possible takes on having in this movie the villain be Lord Business. First of all, 
the whole movie is this satire. Yeah. Right? So yeah. it could like a Muppet. They had that cartoon businessman villain. Well, right, but they was, didn't. They no, didn't call him Lord Business. No, no, right? but he was a businessman. Clearly, he was, yeah, a, yeah. and he was evil, and he loved. Remember, he was cackling. That's so bad. It's like it's it's over, it's so over the top. You can't even take it seriously as a, a businessman as villain. Well, right. Okay. So so in that way, you'd say okay, you can't take it seriously when it's that over the top, and so the audience isn't going to be as affected. Um, but the other thing is. Uh, here, you know, I, I see the whole thing as a satire. Yeah. So you might say that they're making a statement about the fact that in all the movies, the villains are businessmen. Be, so you're so, being very so, generous, though. I do mean, you think I'm, I'm being yeah, generous? I do. I do. I do think. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm thinking it's possible Morgan that Freeman, they're making fun of that Morgan fact. Morgan Freeman, Will Ferrell, they're pro-Obama hacks. These guys are all on board. But like, they're yes. not the writers. It doesn't matter. They actually accepted the script and said, yes, I, I want to be part of this. Uh, the, the way I see it is this. To go that obvious, to make the villain lord business, they're afraid. Again, it's it's like that's the lawn thing. Where they they got to go explicitly out there. Those who go to private school, they're bad people. Okay, so if you you know you you do that, being a businessman is evil. And look so what you, you take it as clumsy propaganda. Absolutely cheap propaganda. Which again, the desperation I love because it tells me that there's some in their mind at least, like like like, like the woman in like the writer in Salon about Ted Cruz, they 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 smell something. They know that after an Obama, there has to be some kind of reaction. Has to be something. They can't just keep this going forever. I mean, they can't. As as a country, we can't survive. And they see something maybe around the corner to get that explicit. I mean, come on. They've always had businessmen, but in a very semi subtle way. Lord business. <laughs> you know I mean, not dark side. Not you know, Lord business. That to me is so outrageous. I think, I think we are going to have to see the movie. But yeah. I think it's a potentially po- possibly, but satirical. I think you're being generous again. I'm, and that's not. I'm not insulting. I'm just no. saying. I, I think you are, and it, it, it's possible. It's possible. You guys in the chat room, watch the teaser trailer after the show is over, and high quality. Fill the comment. Fill in the comments on my blog at don'tletitgo.com and yeah. let us know what you think. Please. Do you think that this is a bunch of writers being obvious? That's possible. In order it's to, very in order to what you think, stave off what happens after Obama, that I they're basically so. they're bracing themselves. They're yeah. bracing themselves after after Carter, yet Reagan, mm-hmm. after two terms of Obama, you're not going to have Hillary Clinton. I don't think so, personally. It's not going to be. It's going to be something absolutely not Obama. This is just my assumption, and I, maybe I'm wishful thinking. I don't know, but they anticipate something different, something that they're not prepared for. And this is why they're again, Lord business. Come on. <laughs> I mean, that is, okay, in a, in a world where Bono can become pro-capitalist, Lord Business as a villain That's in right. the Lego movie could be satire. Could be, but I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, again, I think they're scared. Okay. I think they're terrified. I think like, oh, man, we've had it our way for so long now. We have socialized men. We have all this crap. We have, you know, the most leftist anti-American president of all time. That can continue. You, Hillary Clinton's going to walk in with the presidency? She won't. Ed in the chat room says that the only non-business villain in popular culture, contemporary popular culture, was Dolores Umbridge in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Can you think of another, Bosch? Uh I know there, there there have been because I know we have pointed out sometimes. You know that was good. That was good. That was good. First of all, I mean, well, the Alice shrugged. Who I can't, I can't, I can't watch it. You know, I can't. But their their business heroes, even though it's, it's a terrible adaptation. But um, what was it? Uh, Bruce Wayne. In Batman Begins, especially, especially in, ba- in Batman Begins, uh, a good guy, you know, a hero as a businessman. I mean, he's a, he is a businessman. He owns a corporation. 
Um, I know there was something recently that we, we saw and we liked and we said, okay, that wasn't a total anti-business businessman. I mean, sorry, an anti-business uh, movie attack. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it, what it was. I mean, there's so far in between that, but there are little blips here and there. As Ed says about that one character in Harry Potter, which I forgot about, i got to say. I forgot about the character. Um, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll have to see when the movie actually comes out if if we check it out. It Could is cute. I oh, mean, yeah. they they make a lot of satire. Iron Man, on exactly. Ed Powell, Iron Man, especially in Iron Man Two, as he notes in the opening, when they're trying to basically railroad him, like uh, Reardon, you know, and he basically tells him, "In your face, this is mine. That's it." Walks out uh, arrogantly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, he he, uh, he doesn't do it the way a rank ca- uh, uh, character would. But it's a, a great portrayal of a proud, proud businessman. Um, Steve Jobs in real life. Steve Jobs. Well, right, right. But we're talking about portrayals in the movies. I know. Portrayals in the movies. Well, the movie Jobs. Right. It, it is a portrayal of a heroic businessman, which, which Jobs was. Um, it's interesting to give it, uh, I think, the most explicit one, as Ed knows, is true Iron Man. Iron Man, big time. Big time Iron Man. And especially Iron Man, too. Makes the politicians look more evil than the businessmen, no in the, a way. And, yeah. and the politician, he basically, he pushed the politician. If you, if you remember, when uh, when uh, Tony Stark was having fun with that, with that politician, the politician said, F you. You know what I mean? F you, but he actually said the word. He he brought a politician up to that point, which, you know, which was good. Our chat room is full of naysayers. About what? Uh, they're saying, well, if you're going by probabilities, Bosch, you're right that you know somebody completely opposite of Obama is going to win in the next election, just like I after just, just after after Cotter. I but they say so. they say don't underestimate the stupidity of the Republicans. Sure, sure. But I'm not talking about the, the, uh, the, the Odegaard says he'd be surprised if Republicans manage to win. Look, and um, then Robert here says he has no illusions about the GOP oh, winning. The Republicans are, are done. Yeah. Look at my blog. Look what I, look what I've done. The Republicans, as far as I know, are done. Uh, they could be revived by something else, by the by the Tea Party, but but they are done as a party. They have sold out everything that they were for. So it's not about the, it's not about the Republicans. It's about someone having as a, as just a title Republican, a Ted Cruz, let's say. He's just in the Republican Party. There's no other you know viable non outright non leftist party, even though the Republicans are now Democrats. Right. Um, so yeah, it's not about the Republicans. They're done. They're dead. They are dead. It's about individual politicians uh, who can influence others and maybe bring back some of the ones who said uh, it's over in the Republican Party who are decent. There are still some decent people in the Republican Party. Right. They're not. They don't represent the, the Republicans. So, in in that sense, I think it's very very possible. Okay. Well, we will see who's right soon enough. I imagine that we will still be on the air unless they make it illegal to speak against our dear leader. I will continue. Let's end on a happier note. My show, my way. (laughs) Spaceship blast through sound barrier reaches new heights in test. This is a Los Angeles Times story that I link to at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. You can find it there. British billionaire Richard Branson His commercial space venture is called Virgin Galactic. They took one step closer to carrying tourists into space, they say, with its latest supersonic test flight. On Thursday, the rocket plane went to Mach 1.43 in the skies above the Mojave Desert. It is the second time the aircraft, which is named Spaceship Two, has broken the sound barrier. The test flight, they say, is a key milestone in Virgin Galactic's effort to be the world's first commercial space liner. 
This, I think, is excellent news, and I want to give a big kudos to Branson for, in this economy, continuing to innovate and innovate in a way that inspires the imagination of everyone. Imagine if we have, I mean, you know, Obama has obliterated NASA and has obliterated our space program to the extent that the Japanese have shamed us because they were the first to put a cute robot into space. So, you know, that was a news story we saw this week. But here we have private enterprise going out there and creating perhaps space tourism, which will serve as an inspiration for a generation of kids. So I, I think that's great. Uh, we are done. We are at the end of the show. So I have to tell you now, if you would like to comment on the show, go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. There you can leave comments you know, attached to the post for today's show. Also at the blog, you can find all the different ways of keeping in touch with me during the week. You can find the link to the Facebook page, Don't Let It Go Unheard on Facebook, my Twitter feed. Uh, You could also see the Ayn Rand Bot Twitter feed there. Follow the Ayn Rand Bot. That's a way to, I think, help the future here. So go ahead, go over there, visit us, say hello during the week, comment on the show. If you like the show, please share it. Goodbye from me and Bosch for now. And we will talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.